Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Greetings and welcome, Jennifer. Thanks. 
Oh, Jennifer, um, glad you're here. Glad you joined us. I was waiting for you to call me, and then I realized, oh, they want me to call them. (laughs) Well, absolutely. So happy that you're here, and I'm looking forward to the program very, very much. Um, Again, it's Nick Curto Presents Disclosure Network, and I'm Nick Curto, co-founder and director of Disclosure Network New York. Now, DNNY is a grassroots organization now celebrating our 18th year of providing two meetings a month throughout the year here in Manhattan. We focus on cutting-edge UFO, ET issues, paranormal phenomena, as well as many important related subjects from a wide variety of sources as we go deep into these exciting and sometimes misunderstood subjects that the mainstream press will not disclose. Our members do intensive investigative research into these various topics and share that information with our group at our meetings as well as with our Internet followers. Our motto right from day one is, quote, connecting the dots to seek truth, unquote. We have available to everyone worldwide the DNNY News Blast email service focusing on the topics of special interest. Uh, And that is totally free. Uh, Just if you will, visit our website. I'm going to give you that. It's www.dnny.info. Now, I'm going to repeat that, dnny.info. And type in your email address where it's asked for. Uh, That will then connect you with us. We have hundreds of people that have signed on for this new service and will joining every day. There are more people. Again, it's offered by Disclosure Network New York, and it is totally free. Now, again, my guest, I'm so happy to have her here for this podcast tonight, is Jennifer Stein, filmmaker. Uh, A very warm welcome to you, Jennifer. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, Pleasure. And uh, I'm going to do just a very brief history, uh, if I may. Um, Jennifer W. Stein, filmmaker, and her co-producer, Bob Terrio. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. One, two, Terrio. Oh, Oh, thank you. Uh, One, Uh two, EBE Awards at the Open Minds Film Festival in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, on February 28th. 2015. This is Jennifer's fourth EBE award. Uh, Their documentary film, Travis, a film that tells the background story of Travis Walton, a logger who had an abduction experience by ETs on November 5, 1975, at the Apache Greaves National Forest near uh, uh, Snowflake, Arizona and was taken aboard a spacecraft and was returned days later and, and follows, uh, it follows what happened to his life after that event had occurred. Uh, the film combines new and archived interviews with the logging crew itself, police, uh, the polygraph examiner, uh, and UFO experts explaining why the story continues to astound investigators, researchers, aerophysics, uh, journalists, and filmmakers in their quest for reliable evidence of other worlds, other beings, and other more advanced technologies. The serious documentary provides a rare, uh, important, in-depth explanation of how deliberate debunking 
including lies, distortion, and bribery, attempt to crush this story and ruin the lives of the crew and their families. The film rapidly captures multiple awards uh, of recognition for its brave approach, um, providing impeccable and in-depth facts that connect the dots with real content needed to understand how the veil of secrecy works. Now, Jennifer, as you know, we showed this awesome film at the last DNN meeting in Manhattan and also talked by phone both to you as well as Travis. Uh, It was a wonderful and insightful meeting, and the entire room full of people gave you both a huge, well-deserved round of applause at the end. I, I hope you heard that, did you? Uh, I, I think I wasn't on the call for that at the end. Only Travis was, but thanks for Oh, that's sharing. right. That's right. Well, well, please know that you, you really got uh, as, as, as loud and hearty a applause as, as any, any, anybody has ever been uh, speaking to our meetings. They really enjoyed every, every minute of that interview. Great. Now, I'd like to start things off really right from the very beginning. So if I may... Can I ask you first, uh, where were you born? I was born in uh, Lansdale, Pennsylvania, not far from where I live now. Ah, okay. And uh, were you from a big family with brothers and sisters? Not huge, no. We're, it's just uh, I have I had an older sister, but I lost her uh, two years ago now, um, just about. And uh, she was nine years older than me. And I have an older brother who's really a stepbrother, and he is 16 years older than me. So we each uh-huh. grew up with sort of in like a different household practically. You know, yes. I, our parents were at different stages of their lives when we were each born. So we're all eight years apart, which is rather unusual. I, I actually used to think the gestation period was like eight or nine years rather than eight eight or nine months <laughs> when I was little. I didn't get it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. That's that's really quite an interesting dynamic you just said. Wow. Yes, yeah. Now, what were your mom and dad like? Um, they were both uh, very creative artists. Uh, My dad was uh-huh. an architect and uh, designed modern Frank Lloyd Wright homes. He worked for Frank Lloyd Wright in Chicago oh. Oh. and then moved east and uh, continued to sort of you know, design homes for people. And my mom was a very talented artist and illustrator and interior decorator. So I grew up in a really um, very creative household. I was wondering if that would be the case, and indeed it is. You know, I went to the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, what was it called, Oak, um, outside of Chicago itself, uh, suburbs where the, all his, yes. a lot of his homes are. Oak yes. Park, I believe. Oak Park. Yes. And went to his studio, and that was one of the high points of my trip to Chicago, seeing Oak Park and what Frank Lloyd Wright had done there. Yeah, so now, that was sort of my childhood. I grew up in a very modern 1950s home with very creative parents, and but really sort of like an only child because um, my sister was in college. You know, by the time I was, you know, 12 or 13, she was off in college. So. Wow, wow, that's quite a dynamic there too. Interesting. Now, did did you did you move around or did you pretty much stay in the same place? 
No, I we pretty much stayed. Uh, you know, we never really took vacations. My dad took three-day weekends because we had a lovely uh, pool and seven acres of property to care for, and we were in the middle of Mennonite farmland. So we kind of hung out and had people come stay with us because we had, you know, an interesting home and people wanted to visit us. So all summer my dad took three-day weekends, and we hung out, and we were outside a lot, and we were always looking up, too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. We were looking at satellites going over and Sputnik and things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a nurturing there. I'm I'm kind of discovering here that there was a nurturing uh, in your family because they were creative, and it kind of rubbed off on you, too. I think a little bit, yes. Yeah, basically, mm-hmm. my parents are the type of people that pushed their sleeves up and just did something when they wanted it done. And uh, they didn't sit around and wait for somebody else to do it. You know, if my mom wanted new slip covers for the pool furniture, she made them. Or she wanted new drapes, she made them. Or she wanted a new, you know, outfit to go to a ball or something, she made it. So I grew up making all my own clothes, and I actually worked in a business for a while supporting myself. I worked my way through college, designing and producing clothing and selling it. So when it came to making films, you know, it was a no-brainer that I was going to teach myself and start to make films. It never occurred to me to go to film school. It probably should have, but it didn't. But still, that's wonderful that you that you did that. And well, can I ask you uh, what kind of film cameras cameras did you have at the beginning? What, I'm just curious. Oh well, I, I started with uh, you know um, an, an old like Olympus you know home video camera and started doing videos with my kids, and then gradually moved up to a Sony and then on to a, a nice Canon. Um, and I went from a, what's called a consumer version to a to a professional level version eventually. When I got more sophisticated, I knew how to actually read the menu because these days every freaking option is a menu in your phone. It's kind of a pain in the neck. Oh but, yes. Uh, you know, uh, and if they do include it, it's it's done in like five point type. Have you ever come across something? Oh like yeah, that? yeah. It's so small you need a magnifying glass to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I brought these. I brought things like that to the um, to the copy shop and said, "Could you blow this up as big as possible so I could read <laughs> so it?" So I can read it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that, yes. that goes Aging on more than you think. Aging is tricky. Aging is tricky when you're yeah, and even trying to focus and look through a camera nowadays. I've got you know glasses, and it's affected my ability to have really perfect focus. And you know, I rely on mm-hmm. autofocus and things like that sometimes when I'd rather not use it, but I need it because of my eyesight. So. Right. I, I share that with you. And also, just to go back for a second, I think that that generation of, of parents, uh, they made their own clothes, they, the slipcovers. They, they yes. did things because they, they learned recipes. They, they cooked incredible meals, and they experimented, and it was all kind of learning. And I think that generation it was exactly like that. My parents were exactly like that too. And yeah, I we think did all our own landscaping too. You know, <laughs> exactly everything. Yeah, every, yeah and we mowed our own made. lawn. And <laughs> we mowed our own lawn. Yep. Right? Yep. Yeah. We did too. In fact, I did a lot of that. I only had a younger me sister. Too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, me and, too. Um, but you know what? It was character building, and I think that there's something to be said for that kind of mentality. Let's do it ourselves. Let's make it ourselves. 
Right. And right. Uh, I remember yeah. when I did my a film, a, a very short film for um, one of the educational TV stations here. Um, I made a three-minute film, and I used my Super 8 movie camera, and I, oh. I spliced the film with scissors and and tape. <laughs> right. This was way right. back when, and uh, well, but it worked. It. Yeah. My worked. parents never never had a, a video camera. We couldn't afford it, so it wasn't until I got married till I started playing with film. So. Well, we're glad that you did. Very glad. And I wanted to ask you too before Travis. Um, uh, where can you name like a couple of, of film like what kind of subject matter you had that you used? Um, well, I had done another film called The Disclosure Dialogues, which was where I sat down a group of uh, experts on UFO topics and had them in dialogue with each other, chatting about what they knew about specific topics, and I called it The Disclosure Dialogues. Wow. And, uh, that, when, that, was that, uh, when was that That was done? in 2012. And oh. um, that, Is that also available one. Yes, it's actually out on Amazon. It's called the Disclosure Dialogues. And oh. um, if you go to my website on Wings Productions, it's and right. I can spell that. It's O N W I N G E S Productions. Wing is actually was my maiden name. W I N G E. So when I came to doing email and whatnot, I needed eight characters, and I said, well, I'll use my last name, and I didn't have enough letters, you know, to <laughs> use my maiden name. So uh, I put O-N on the front and an S on the back, and that gave me on wings, and I thought, that's good, you know, that's kind of my maiden name, and it has a sense of flight to it. Yes. So uh, I've just kept it and just kept the name and just kept using it. So On Wings Productions has a link to the the Disclosure Dialogue, and people can go there and read about it, and I think there's an Amazon link there now too, and they can click on it and watch it. Oh, that sounds great, and def- definitely we'll do that, and I'll also uh, email our, our group and let them know that also. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have a couple great. of other I have a couple of other productions up there, like small pieces people can watch. These are a lot of things I often did for free. Like I did a little tribute to Zachariah Sitchin, and that gets oh. a lot of attention and a lot of hits because I was very friendly with Zach Sitchin and read his work and studied with him, and I ended up making a little memorial film for him when he passed away. Excellent, excellent work, and. Did you yourself, I want to ask you this, did you yourself uh, witness any UFOs? Yes, I I have had some sightings. I had one actually before Travis's when I was 19 years old in my house where I grew up in Lansdale at very early in the morning. And um, it actually, it was a pretty profound experience. I wrote about it in a journal, but I have to tell you, Nick, I didn't, I didn't know how to digest it because at that point I hadn't yet started to really study in depth about UFOs or go to UFO conferences. I was in college. I was working my way through college. I didn't know a lot about UFOs. In 1975, we didn't hear a lot about them on TV or radio. And, you know, we were Mm -hmm. limited to, what, 3, 6, and 10, right? And then there was Channel 12. But still, (laughs) there weren't like... There was nothing like ancient aliens on television. There was no way for me to really learn about stuff unless I went and found books. And I was busy working my way through college. So it stayed in my gray box um, for 25 years until I ran into somebody else who was at my house at that time, basically asleep on another floor of the house and had the exact same sighting I had. 
it was like 5.30 in the morning, and it was a very large white rectangle of white undulating light less than 500 feet away from us outside, for wow. me, outside my bedroom window. It was quite profound, and I had some missing time with it, and I was very confused by it. it I didn't know what to make of it. So 25 years later, when this friend of mine said, what happened when we had that UFO experience, I was shocked. I literally dropped my glass of wine all over his kitchen floor. I took a couple steps back. I went, wait a minute. Don't wow. you mess with my memory. I know what I saw, but I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't even want you to tell me. You go write it down. Draw a picture, write it down, and I'll go mm -hmm. write mine down. And then we'll read each other's stories, and then I'll really know. If oh, that's a great plan. Now, then you compared notes, and how did that go? And then we, uh, we we had the exact same sighting. It was exactly the same. And did somehow, they have any, uh, any time uh, missing, too? Did they have anything like that? Well, they like didn't that? know. They didn't okay. know they had missing time because I was journaling at that time, and I'd gotten up to journal a dream, and that's when I encountered this thing outside my bedroom window. And then I wrote down the time, right? And it was like oh. 5.30 in the morning, and it wasn't light. And then, then when it took off, it was daylight, and I ran into my mother's room next door and woke her up and said, Mom, Mom, did you see this thing? You know, and I described what I saw, and she looked at me and asked me if I was on drugs. <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, then oh, I boy. went back to my bedroom, of course, you know, disgusted and frustrated and realized it was not 530 and it wasn't dark outside. And that was just a mind snap for me, Nick. Oh, I couldn't yeah. figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. And I, I basically held my head and my heart started to pound. All the energy drained out of me. I laid down on my bed and I fell back to sleep, saying to myself, don't go back to sleep, don't go back to sleep, don't go back to sleep. <laughs> I, but I just couldn't figure out what had happened. So then I, then I woke up about 1030 and I wrote everything down, clear oh, the good. bell. That's good. But I had this missing time from like 5.30 to 7. It was like an hour and a half of time. I don't know what happened. And so I didn't really know that it wasn't some kind of dream or some kind of waking state or weird state of consciousness or whatever. And mm -hmm. that stayed in my gray box until 25 years later when I had this friend say to me, you know, what happened? And that's when I knew, okay, this was a real event. I had journaled it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I'm glad I was journaling because it was really profound when I realized, okay, that was real. So no. what does that mean? And I, oh, I, I, I really had to digest it and say, I have the choice. I don't have to come out and tell anybody about this. This, this can stay right and tucked neatly in my little emotional gray box, right? Mm -hmm. I never have yep. to deal with this again. But what will I miss if I do that? You mm -hmm. know, I was like, wow, this is pretty profound. And I just decided I was going to give myself permission, and I wasn't going to worry about the ridicule, and I was going to start buying books and going to conferences and reading about this stuff and learning. And that was in 2000, and I've never looked back. No, I'm glad. I'm glad you did it because that, you, you made a great decision there. I'm so glad that you did do that that way. And um, I'd love to see a close-up of your face when all of a sudden it dawned <laughs> that this was this was something that was very real, and it wasn't yeah. just you; it was someone else too. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, 
Oh, we had a hard time chewing on it all night, let me tell you. We sat there and kind of drank wine and smoked cigarettes and were like, well, what does this mean? Oh, no. We, we were like quite uh, disturbed ourselves when we realized. And this was a dear friend I'd spent a year on a, in a traveling road show together with. And then we'd both come home and I was working and going to school and he'd gone to Europe and he came to visit me and was asleep on another part of the house and basically had the same encounter. So it was really, really quite profound. Did you or he ever take a look and see if there were any slight markings or anything on your body at all? Did you ever no. think to do that? No. no. Okay. We didn't. Um, I talked to some people well, who – we didn't who, talk about it. Right, right, right. We didn't talk about it at the time, right? 25 years went by. So um, and then that wow, what a what a moment yeah. that must have been! Wow, <laughs> and uh, I, I've talked to some people that have at some point said, "Why do why do I have the, the little hole, the little markings, those little dots? They were never there before. They're not freckles, and there's a pattern, uh, sometimes a circle right. or or a triangle or other configurations." And um, they've even gone so far as to get x-rays of their body to see if there were any implants. Right. And some people said there were. They, they, they did find that there was something that could not be explained, a little tiny fragment that showed up in the x-ray, and it was right. an implant. So that's a whole other subject, but that it goes is, on. Yeah, I, goes I, on. I don't know. I don't, I've never bothered to go through that process. I don't really think that there was an, an abduction as much as there was a dimensional distortion and a missing time. And it may have even been some kind of like just a download or a visitation or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't really attempted to unpack it because I can't <laughs> sort of, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's it, whatever was going on is buried in a part of my mind that I really can't get access to. And um, I think that what I'm doing is uh, is good enough. You know, I'm I'm reading books, I'm meeting authors, I'm making important documentary films. I like you run a program here in Philadelphia called Mainline Mufon. I only oh. meet once a month, but I I bring in speakers, and I've been doing it for about 20 years now. Excellent. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. I'm so glad yeah. you did that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Do you, do you have it in a, a library or do you rent a room I do. like we do? I do in a, in a great public library with a wonderful uh, screening room, and uh, the acoustics are great. And we get about 50, 60 people on a regular basis now that show up, and uh, it's lovely. And well, I do it for free. What do you do it on the weekends or when, when do you I do it do on a Tuesday night, once a oh, month. Tuesday nights, okay. And is it once a month or how does it work? Once a month, mm-hmm. That's excellent. Good for you. That is, that is yeah. excellent you're doing that. Now, here we go with, again, the movie was so well produced. It was so well cut. Uh, we never lost the interest for a second. It was really excellent. Travis was such a good documentary film. And I just want to ask you a little bit about that. Um, sure. Did you... The subject matter, um, did it just seem like a natural thing? Because it's one of the major cases. Did you just say, we got to do a documentary on How did that work out? Well, I was asked by Peter Robbins, who may have come and spoken once or twice for your group. He's a oh, he New did. York researcher oh, Peter is and great. writer. I, I saw Peter's him recently in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So Peter's a dear friend, and he asked me to be an assistant of his 
at the one of the Roswell conferences that he was running. And it was, you know, those Roswell conferences get to be pretty big events with upwards of 10,000 people coming into the city. And That's he was running an event for the mayors. Um, there, there was a the, the museum run had run an event for years, and the mayors got together and decided to do their own events throughout town and I was there working for the mayors with uh, Peter and Travis was one of our speakers so after the conference we all went out for dinner together and over a bottle of wine Peter and I said to Travis Walton Travis you know your little town of Snowflake would be a great place to have a conference haven't you ever thought about you know organizing or running a conference because your events one of the as it, Mostly, you know, it's very significant, just like the Roswell case was. I mean, a lot of people were involved in it. You were missing for five days. You know, the police were involved. You had state polygraphers give you and all the other loggers tests. I mean, it's, it's really got a lot of meat to it, right? The more you dig in Travis's case, like, the more you find. And yep. Travis said, well, that would be a great idea, but I don't know, like, the first thing about organizing a conference, right? And Peter and I looked at each other and said, well, we can coach you, you know, like, we know something about it. And uh, in the process, I kind of agreed to coach him and and help him try to get it organized. And it was, like, five years off. We were planning for the 40th anniversary, and this was five years before. This was, like, in 2010, Mm-hmm. And we said to him, you know, well, look, we'll work with you. And then it occurred to me that what Travis really wanted to do is to take people up into the forest, up into the woods at night where the event happened. And I'm thinking to myself, there's big liability issues here, Travis. You may not realize this, but, you know, there's wild bear, there's coyotes, there's moose. A lot of people, like, you know, in our age bracket, some people can't walk very far, let alone at night over boulders and through ravines 45 minutes into the forest where your event took place and in november it's freezing up there so if you wanted to do it on the anniversary of your event there could be snow on the ground i just thought it was very unrealistic to try to get into the forest on this no absolutely you're absolutely right on that that would have been national forest you know yeah no 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 you did it you were thousands and thousands of acres of pine trees and I just thought, look, let's do a film that we can show, taking people to the site. We kind of yep. do a walkthrough, and then we have that as a just-in-case. you know. And maybe we can take people there during the day, and those who are able-bodied can walk out there. But it's quite a hike. you got to hike you know, from the nearest rim road. It's a 45-minute hike. Wow. So that's how, that's how I got started. I had done, flown out there with Bob Terrio, and we did like a review with some of the other loggers that came in, walked into the forest with us, and talked about the event. And we filmed them, and we filmed the forest, and we got a sense of what the event was like for them. And then I was busy running the 2014 National MUFON Symposium in Philadelphia, and it just occurred to me that, you know, of the speakers that were coming in, a lot of them could actually speak very accurately about Travis's case, and I just decided to get an extra hotel room, put up a backdrop, and interview as many speakers as I could about Travis to see what kind of interviews I would I could get. And I did an in-depth interview with Travis himself and with Rich Dolan and at another conference I was at and I thought, you know what? 
maybe I could. Like, I didn't even realize I could make this documentary, Nick. I, I kind of backed into it just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, if I've got these bloggers and I have them walking through the forest and I've got these great interviews, you know, if I got a couple more interviews, I could really do a decent documentary. So I flew back out to Arizona and I found the police who had been involved in the case. I found the original guy who did the polygraph examinations. He was still alive. His name was Cy Gilson, and I interviewed him. And then I really had, then I started to cut, you know, and edit and hone down and try to figure out what I was going to do. And I had about a four hour film, and I knew I needed to get this down to like an hour and a half, you know. And I was like racking my brain what do you take out? What do you take out? Because it's almost more important what you take out than what you leave in. Mm -hmm. It's a a process of reduction, you know, reducing the story down to the most important pieces. And I kind of learned to edit with my my eyes closed. That kind of sounds counterproductive, but you have to listen for the story, right? Because there's a narrative that goes through a documentary. That makes sense. So I was doing the best I could, and uh, a bunch of stuff was happening, and it was October, and I was hoping to get this done by December to get it into the Open Minds Conference by the beginning of 2015 because I wanted a year to promote Travis's conference. So I approached my uh, wonderful young nephew who lives in Hollywood, California, who's a great filmmaker, and I, I turned the, the, the basically the four-hour project over to him and said, Here's the book. Here's the story. This is an amazing, you know, piece for a great documentary. Can you help me hone this and edit it down? And uh, from there, he really took it and kind of figured out, okay, this is how we're going to, this is the best way to approach this. And he kind of restructured it and got it into an hour and a half for me in about two months. And then I hired a guy to do um, a soundtrack for it you know, and so gradually it, it it developed, and then after that, we actually ended up doing even some more with it. We kind of remade the film a little bit with some CGI, and we had to buy new archived footage because um, I actually found some archived footage that I thought I had negotiated a good sale and good deal on, and I paid for. But the guy who I bought it from never gave me the official contract I was looking for, so he threatened to huh. sue me, and I had to go out and buy other archive footage rather than oh boy oh rather wow. than fight a lawsuit it was just yeah. cheaper to say all right we'll take that footage out and i'll go find new footage so no that no a, that's i can i can understand i had an experience like that once myself i know what that's like so oh brother but yeah. you you did it right and and the final product uh, it, it says it all it's it's a very very good film and it makes oh, all the right you. points and everyone in the room just loved it, absolutely did. And uh, it's, it gives you such a, a the big-picture view of what it was like for Travis and all the people who were affected uh, right. in different ways uh, by that's what right. was going on. Yeah, and it I really mean, did work. I mean, all the boys. Right, that's really this true. Is, uh, all the boys were really affected. Yeah. This is a phenomenally fascinating topic, and I hate to uh, intrude, um, but we're running out of time, and I'd like very much for your contact information uh, to get out there. Uh, my apologies. I'd love to have you come back, and uh, I know Nick no will that. Sure. So it's, uh, if they want to learn about the film, they can go to tr- the TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. 
that's a good way to learn about the film. If they want to learn about me, they can go to On Wings Productions. That's O-N-W-I-N-G-E-S, productions.com, and they can contact me through there. If there's anybody listening in the Philly area and they want to come to the Mainline MUFON events, that's Mainline, just like it sounds, M-A-I-N, and then L-I-N-E, the word MUFON, which stands for the Mutual UFO Network. So MainlineMUFON.com. And they can see the programs that we have going on here in the Philly area. Um, those are probably the best ways to reach me. Excellent. And uh, for for me, uh, you can go to my first of all my email directly, and that is n i c k n y n y one at gmail dot com. And the one is a figure one, not o n e. So that's nick n y n y one at gmail dot com. Uh, the website for Disclosure Network is simply dnny.info, and that lists what we're uh, currently working on, what the next meeting will be about, which is coming right up, and um, it will give you also a listing of special events that we occasionally do throughout the year. So that's a very active website. And also, uh, like I mentioned before at the beginning of the program, you can also put your email there, and then we can send you the – and it's almost a daily uh, feed of what's going on uh, on uh, these topics. And uh, it's an education. Certainly everybody who gets it has said this has opened up so many new vistas for me in the whole area of, of, of learning about UFO, about research, and about paranormal phenomenon, and sometimes they're quite connected. So those are the best ways to reach both Jennifer and myself. Well, thanks to both of you. Nick, you're awesome. And uh, Jennifer, you sound phenomenally awesome uh, yourself as well. I included some of these links already, and with the announcement for the show, uh, I'll gladly add the ones that I've missed. Uh, And if you see anything you like there, please feel free to add it. Um, Thank you very much. Okay, well, for having me. Uh, Jennifer, a very heartfelt uh, thank you to you for sharing those insights with us all, and uh, much love to you. Uh, This is Nick Curto for Disclosure Network New York, wishing you all an enlightening journey as you connect the dots to seek truth. Till next time, keep informed, stay safe, and be kind to one another. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
Thanks so much uh, for being on. How did your odyssey begin? That, that sounds like an amazing life you've created for yourself. 
Uh, well, I appreciate that, and it probably sounds more amazing than it really is, but thank you. <laughs> uh, well, it started a long time ago. I believe it was, boy, oh, boy, I was around four years old, so we're probably talking 1981 or so. And I had my first really odd encounter. I was mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> I was living at the tip of Maine, which is uh, right next to Canada, and I lived right on the St. John River, and you could literally throw a rock and hit Canada. And I had wow. gone to sleep one night. Yeah, I was very close. I used to get my haircuts in Canada, actually, when I was uh, a toddler. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I was sound asleep one night, and a clap of thunder woke me up. And then I started hearing the rain hitting the windows, and I could see the sky lighting up from where I was laying down. So I decided to sit up, and I was like, ooh, a thunder and lightning storm. This is awesome. So I start watching that for a little while. I'm not really sure how long. Again, you know, I was four or five years old. And then there was this really odd lightning strike, almost as if I were to ask you to draw a lightning bolt, you would draw like a thick, jagged yellow line or uh-huh. maybe think about your, yeah, or maybe think about your smartphone's charging indicator, you know, <laughs> and it seemed as though that was stuck in a cloud. And mm. even at that age, I knew you only saw lightning, you know, for less than a second. And it was stuck in a cloud and there was like electricity coming off of it, like other you know, thinner lightning bolts coming off of it, and there were booming sounds, and I watched this for a little bit, and then I just fell back asleep. I don't really know what happened. I wake up in the morning, and not even thinking about it, go to the bathroom, and I'm walking from the bathroom to my bedroom, and when you're doing that, you can actually look out my window, my bedroom window, and I could still see that lightning bolt in the cloud. Wow. So I thought that was weird. I ran downstairs and got my dad, brought him upstairs to look out the window to see whatever this was so he could tell me what it was, and it was gone. So I tried explaining to him what I saw, and, you know, he did what, you know, normal parents do. He was just like, yeah, 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 you know, and just rubbing me on the head. And I'm like, I must have been really insistent because he kind of had to stop me and say, listen, like, it didn't even rain last night. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And that's when I know, or that's when I knew I experienced something kind of weird. Now, two weeks later, my dad wakes me up and my sister, and to me, it was like three in the morning. You know, again, I'm four or five years old, Uh, but it could have been 10 o'clock at night. I'm not really sure. And uh, my parents dragged me and my sister outdoors to look at the northern lights. It's the only time I've ever seen them in my life, and they were beautiful, and, and, you know, it was like these crazy, weird ribbons of lights in the sky. Uh So these two incidents taught me at a really young age that really weird stuff happens in the sky, and I should probably look up. (laughs) Uh, But that was really the catalyst for my interest in all things strange. You're you're very wise for a four-year-old, and if we lived in mythic times, that would be interpreted as a an omen, a sign uh, of destiny uh, from Zeus or one of the thunder gods of old. Wow, you're a very kind man, and I appreciate that. <laughs> well, well, thank you. But uh, your your story is indeed uh, you know very amazing. 
Um, and uh, that is a, a really incredible way to start your life's journey. I, I'm looking forward to hearing more. Yeah, uh, that turned into a lifetime of looking up. I look up all the time. Uh, in my lifetime, I've seen 11 UFOs. To some people, that might sound like a lot. To other people, it doesn't sound like much. To me, it sounds like a lot. And when I say UFO, I literally mean an unidentified flying object. I, it doesn't mean that it's synonymous with extraterrestrial, although that's right. what that term has turned into, you know, and, and a lot of researchers are now saying UAP, you know, things like that. But regardless, uh, I've seen 11 UFOs in my lifetime, and some of them, I, you know, really could have been something else, and I'm just misidentifying it, which I, you know, which is fair, and I understand that. Uh, but I still, to this day, can't identify it, but I understand that it could have been something man-made or something natural. Now, out of those 11, there's probably three or four, including that lightning bolt, that uh, I, I have no idea. I, I, I still scratch my head and, and, and try to figure that out. But uh, I guess to follow chronologically, um, that early fascination with, with all things that are weird, with the catalyst being the, the lightning bolt, uh, I started to, uh, in grade school, to devour any strange stories of any kind. That includes ghosts, that includes Bigfoot, that includes Loch Ness Monster, Bermuda Triangle, all that good stuff. And I used to love when we had the uh, scholastic library fairs at yeah. our school. Yeah. And I, I would always migrate to, you know, there was always at least one or two books that were on the paranormal. And mm -hmm. uh, I would always get those. And then when I got to high school, uh, I started checking out UFO books uh, that we have at the high school. I think there were only like four, uh, but I took them out all the time. Uh, you know, they read like textbooks. I mean, a lot of these UFO, early UFO books are a little bit of a slog to get through, uh, yeah. but I was fascinated by by the stories and the pictures that were in there, and uh, I, I, I read them as much as possible. And during that time, uh, especially in my uh, late teens, I started outwardly talking about it. It was something I kept to myself for quite a while, just, you know, a personal interest, a hobby, whatever. Uh, uh, I wasn't trying to, like, hide it on purpose because I was ashamed. I was just, you know, just doing my thing. Uh, but in my late teens, I started sharing these stories, um, my own and uh, other stories that I've read in some of these books, and started asking people just around me if they had any experiences. And sure enough, you know, somebody's had a ghost story. Somebody had a UFO story. Um, and that turned into when I got into my early 20s to collect these stories. So now I'm in my mid-20s or so, and I have my own library of paranormal books. And there's a lot of books on the paranormal in Maine, but there wasn't a book solely dedicated to UFOs in Maine. And I got the mm. dumb idea to, to write that book. <laughs> of course, I had idea. no idea... <laughs> Well, I had no idea what I was getting into and what really writing a book entailed. And, uh, you know, when you, when you start that process, you learn pretty quick that it's a much bigger process than you anticipated. So 
so I started collecting and doing research on a lot of different stories. And some of that, you know, I'm, I'm researching and, and reading through microfiche, and then I'm also uh, looking just at old newspapers that are available. Uh, there were a lot of books that referenced stories uh, that took place in Maine. You know, the whole book wasn't about it, but there was a, a story here or there. Uh, then I started talking to local witnesses, and uh, that kind of started my in-person interview process. Okay. So I started collecting all these stories, and by the time I was like, I think I have enough here to really write something, I must have gone through about 800 cases just from the state of Maine. That's a plethora, you know, of of cases, and... And not knowing really how to write a book, the first book that I wrote took me about six years to write. And that really included, you know, gathering information and and interviews and and research and, you know, the writing. I think the writing itself maybe took two years or so, uh, but the whole process took like six years. And, you know, then comes the headache of, well, now I have this manuscript. What the hell do I do now? You know, but that's a wholly, that's a totally different process. Uh, but that's really how I got into, or that's you know the the origin story, if you will, on on how I started to 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 try to pursue this in a professional manner. That is awesome, and and it it speaks a lot about your dedication uh, to your passions and your persistence, and you know to your uh, focus. That that is amazing uh, that you had that experience at such a young age, and then that you kind of found your unique niche, you know, in your early twenties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I actually feel really blessed by by that realization early on. Uh, also, it is kind of a curse as well, um, not a curse that I'm ashamed of or want to go away, but <clears throat> it makes everything else unimportant, which is kind of frustrating sometimes, uh, especially professionally speaking. But, you know, you do what you got to do, and, and, you know, you get yeah. through your days and months and years, and uh, uh, you keep working on your passions. It's easy when you're passionate about it. Yes, it is. And how did the music enter into this uh, equation? <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, uh, music, I've probably the, around the same time frame. Uh, I, I really uh, enjoyed music of all kinds. Uh, but I think the first memory I have of actually really enjoying music is my aunt. She would come over and play guitar. And I was just so fascinated that she knew how to play an instrument. Nobody else in my immediate family knew how. And she would come over and sing to us. And I'm sure there were some, you know, gospel songs, things like that. I'm sure some country songs because I'm from northern Maine, and that's what everybody listened to in their early days. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I was just really fascinated by it. And that, you know, was the catalyst for my interest. And then uh, in the mid-'80s, I really started getting into uh, groups like Run DMC or Big Daddy Kane, Ice-T, Beastie Boys, and a bunch of stuff like that, stuff that spoke to me uh, at that time frame. And uh, that interest just continued to grow. And I think it was in high school, again, kind of the same time frame where I'm discovering myself, paranormally speaking, if that's a thing, uh-huh. that might have been the first time that's ever been said. But um, 
uh, I was uh, also had this heavy interest in music and formed, you know, a, cu- a couple of bands here and there and uh, really started pursuing electronic music, you know, with drum machines and samplers and turntables and all that good stuff and uh, started recording my own little songs here and there. And it's just been a personal endeavor I've been doing since the mid to late 90s, you know. And do you have any albums out? I don't even know if people are doing albums uh, anymore. Uh, I'm in my 60s. So. Oh, sure. <laughs> like, no, uh, yeah, people... It doesn't exist that much anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, albums are still definitely being made, but it's, you know, it's all about streaming and, you know, things like that. But singles being released from them, all that's still a thing. But, yeah, I have I have a lot of albums out there. There's probably a little bit less than 20. Uh, I'm on a record wow. label called Milled. Milled Pavement Records. It's milledpavement.com. Uh, uh, a good bunch of guys over there. They're based out of Portland, Maine. And uh, I've released uh, probably half of my stuff through them. But uh, since um, I've been so focused with books and documentaries and things like that, it certainly has slowed down in the last, you know, five to eight years. Um, I'll do, I also have a podcast, so I'll do some music for that. I and that. Uh, I. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I've produced some music for some friends or whatever, but it's t- definitely taken a backseat as I pursue this a bit more. It's kind of taken over my life, all this UFO and paranormal stuff. Um, tell me about your podcast. Oh, sure. It's called I Want to Believe, the podcast, and uh, <clears throat> it's uh, just about to launch season three. And we do it a little bit different in regards to format. Uh, what we do is release it. We release everything all at once in seasons, kind of like Netflix style. So we write and record everything, and uh, then I edit everything. It's probably about a casual three-month process. Uh, and then again, we release it all at once. And uh, I just got done literally last night uh, finishing up season three. Uh, and I'll also throw in a few bonus episodes here and there. Like there's always like a Halloween episode. And uh, this year I'm doing a Thanksgiving and a Christmas episode. And that doesn't mean they're really holiday related. It's just I feel like uh-huh. telling a creepy story, you know, uh-huh. during that time of year when people are home. Um so I've been doing that for this is our third season and that's going to launch in early 2020 season three and uh, pretty excited about it. lots of cool stories we talk about everything haunted lighthouses uh, black eyed children uh, dog men lizard men you know a bunch of different stuff. Oh, that is fantastic, and uh, uh, that is an interesting way of uh, doing it. Uh, I used to do fringe television uh, back in the day, like a decade and a half ago, and we kind of winged that as we were going along. We we always wound up filming a lot more than what we needed, and some things mm. that seemed like great ideas actually didn't pan out, so we kind of edited them uh, out, uh, but it was producing a new show every uh, two weeks. Uh, it would oh, make life wow. a lot easier, and thematically, it would give the show more cohesion to do it the way you're suggesting. Yeah, I completely agree. There's, you know, a lot of shows I've been on, like yours, and I don't know how you guys do it. Live shows every week, you got to figure out a guess. It's a headache I don't need in my life. So, uh, and I really am into audio editing, and it kind uh-huh. of uh, it satisfies that piece of it since I'm not producing as much music these days. It's really satisfying that audio editing craving that I have. And, uh, yeah, honestly, it's much more manageable in my opinion. And I do feel as though that it 
provides a lot of cohesion as well. And we tend to record the episodes back to back, you know, because there's no pressure. So whenever my buddy and I have time to record, uh, we'll probably bang out five, eight, ten episodes and then, you know, get together the next day, bang out the rest of them. And and then that part of it's kind of done. Then it's just all the editing and everything. So. Wow. Um, I, I, I'm Googling as you're speaking, and I put a link to your uh, music. Um, I'm finding a lot of, I believe, podcasts. Can you uh, direct me so I can get the right one uh, to put a link so that folks can follow it? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, it's available wherever podcasts are available, so Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, and it's I Want to Believe, the podcast. Okay, I want to believe. Okay, that's what yeah, I did already. I, want to believe. I believe. I want to podcast oh there you go you have season three now uh yeah that's kind of like the 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 graphic holder for season three that's going to be launching okay awesome and you mentioned the documentary as well yeah 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 i uh i suppose uh well i i think i'm a quasi filmmaker i i'm not really one but i'm pretending to be one uh but i, I went to school for your filmmaker <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to school for video and multimedia, but that was, uh, you know, over a decade ago. So technology has completely changed since I was in school. But there's some basics that you kind of hold on to, which is, you know, composition, things like that. You just kind of have to know or, you know, learn what the new technology is. And, you know, I had a, a basic understanding of Adobe Premiere and Photoshop and things like that for my schooling. So, uh, via YouTube uh, instruction videos and downloading and using, uh, uh, you know, 2019's Adobe Premiere, I was able to, you know, figure it out. But, uh, yeah, there's two documentaries that I have. One I made with a, uh, a fellow researcher and investigator named Bill Brock, and that's called Abducted New England, and that's available on Amazon Prime. And my latest documentary, which just came out this year, in June of this year, is called Otherworldly Amore. And that's a fascinating story that, uh, you know, I'd love to tell your audience about. I'd love to hear it. Sure. Uh, There's this couple. Oh, that's also available on Amazon Prime. Uh, There's this couple from southern Maine, and they've been experiencing... Uh, seemingly extraterrestrial activity in and around their home. And we we ended up hooking up via Facebook. And uh, Shauna uh, and Josh, uh, they started telling me about these experiences that that they've been having. Uh, There's been lights in the sky have been seen. There's been missing time. There's maybe possible abduction going on, but they don't remember being abducted. But there seems to be some evidence of that afterwards with bruising or strange marks on their body, feeling very fatigued, you know, sleeping for 10 hours, uh, but but uh, feeling like, you know, maybe they only slept for an hour. And they have, which is really great, they have all of this footage and, and, and picture evidence of what they've been going through. So that's included in the documentary as well. And, and, and some of their stories are, are, are truly fascinating. Uh, one of them with Josh, um, they are both former paranormal investigators. Uh, they're not doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, Josh was asleep one night in, uh, in his bed in um, uh, New York, and he was going,
going over some uh, EVP recordings. And so he's got his laptop sitting on his belly, and he's laying down. He's got headphones in, and he's listening and listening, and he ends up falling asleep. Well, he wakes up, and the laptop and his headphones are on his nightstand next to him, and there's this weird flashing light coming from the window. It's a red pulsating light coming from the window. And he feels like he can see, almost see, these two figures standing in the corner of his room. And right when his eyes are kind of adjusting and, and just making out these shadow figures in the corner of his room, he then explains, which is wild to believe, but he then explains that his wall opens up almost into what he's describing as maybe like another dimension or something. That's what it sounds like, yeah. Yeah, and his dog is sleeping on his bed, and, uh, on his bed, and at this point, when the wall opens up, he says the dog is standing on his bed and acting very agitated, and he's barking, and Josh is still laying down, and he's just trying to comprehend what he's seeing when he feels himself being pulled off the bed towards the wall. And at this point, he's terrified, and he starts screaming, like, no, let me go. Like, what are you doing? This can't happen. Let me go. Let me go. And after he does that for a little bit, everything just stops. The wall is back to normal. He's just laying in his bed, and everything has, has, has quieted down. Even the dog is starting to calm down a little bit. And he's just laying in bed, and he's looking up at the ceiling, and he starts seeing these black balls uh, like shadow balls, I guess, kind of flying around the, the ceiling of the room, and he can't explain that either. And so obviously that freaked him out. So he sits up why. in bed and grabs the uh, – I'm sorry? I could see why. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he sits up and decides to write it all down like he didn't want to forget it. So that same night in Maine where his girlfriend Shauna is living – she has a really odd situation happen to her. Previously, uh, or, or earlier in the night, she was riding, uh, giving her son a ride home, and they both saw a red UFO in the sky. And they have a picture of it, which is included in the documentary. And she really got this ominous feeling from this red UFO. She couldn't really explain it, but, you know, she's with her son, and, and it eventually you know, flew out of their eye line of sight, you know, and uh, she didn't really think about it too much or was trying not to anyways in front of her son because of this awful feeling that she was having. Mm -hmm. Well, she's putting her son to bed later that night, and he starts talking to her about the UFO, like, hey, Ma, what do you think that was, and blah, 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 and, you know, did you get a bad feeling from it? And he, she was talking to him. He was nine years old at the time, and she was talking to him like a mother would, you know, trying to acknowledge it but didn't want him to worry about it. So later that night, around 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, Shauna is woken up by this intense pain in her side. And to her, it feels like maybe she's having some sort of cyst in her ovaries. Uh, she knows what that feeling is like, and sometimes it goes away, and then you move a certain way and it comes back. But it's not going away. So she's writhing around the bed in pain. And this lasts for like a good hour. And she's sweating. And she's really nervous. She's got a son in bed. And she's wondering if she might have to go to the hospital. 
and then all of a sudden it just kind of goes away. You know, I mean, after an hour or so, but it finally goes away. So the next morning she's talking to her boyfriend, Josh, and explained what happened the night before, including the red UFO. And then he's like, oh, my God, well, this happened to me last night. And that started with the red pulsating light outside his window and then obviously the wall opening up. And they're like, oh, my God. Well, what's really wow. interesting is is they, since childhood separately, they've been having these really odd paranormal and extraterrestrial encounters. And this followed them into adulthood this followed them and almost feels like to them maybe it brought them together so now they are married and they live in their home in southern maine and they are still continuing to experience these things together and the documentary is really just uh to to document that story but more importantly the Mm -hmm. love and support that they have for each other through these encounters. And that explains the title of Otherworldly Amor. And uh, uh, that is incredibly awesome. Uh, And you also have published uh, other books besides uh, your first one. Yeah, yeah. The uh, first book is called UFOs Over Maine. And the second book, which came out in June of 2018, is called Otherworldly Encounters evidence of ufo sightings and abductions and all of those stories take place in maine as well and uh the writing process or the 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 manuscript process on that uh was a lot shorter than the first book this one took about two and a half years to come together uh, I tried to interview witnesses when i could other stories i just had to share because they were fascinating and I believe I do a pretty good job of leaving it up to the reader to decide whether you know they believe the story or not. They uh-huh. didn't have the privilege of they didn't have the privilege of sitting with some of those witnesses, you know. And when you sit with a witness, you kind of you know you hear the tone in their voice, the look in their eye, their body language, and and uh, you can really you know get a sense of when someone's maybe not being so truthful. And I would say at the very least, I believe that the witness believes what they're telling me, you know, and that's good enough for me to to share a story uh, typically. Uh, But there's some stories in here where I I don't know what to make of it. Uh, You know, I'm pretty sure it was an extraterrestrial encounter, especially when you're talking with, you know, a former uh, person that was in the military. Um, Or or, or even there there was this woman, she's uh, in her 60s, and when I was done speaking with her, uh, we met at a restaurant in her hometown, and she looked at me, and her eyes were kind of tearing up. And she's like, I, I just want to know why me? And I, I had to tell her, like, I, I don't have any answers for you. The only thing that I can tell you is that someone who experienced something similar might read your story and maybe not feel so alone. And that's maybe the best thing that that I can provide for you, you know, and that seemed to comfort her a little bit, you know, but, uh, definitely no, no answers to, to any of her questions. Um, that's a big yeah. gift what, to give somebody. I know uh, when I've had like public forums in libraries, uh, a lot of times people will come because they have these stories to share. Uh, they've sure. tried sharing them with the people closest to them. Uh, and they were kind of shot down or made fun of. So they're carrying these stories around and there's no one to share them with. So here they come and listen uh, uh, to me speaking, to other people speaking. So now they have a bunch of people that will listen. 
so they're not alone anymore. So that's a tremendous uh, gift that uh, you, you're giving. And uh, I don't think anybody really has uh, any real answers. Uh, but uh, the very fact you're asking the questions is important. Yeah, and I'm really glad you said what you said because um, – you know, I, I don't really think of it as, as gift-giving, but it, it, it's kindness. And, and I think the best thing you can do for somebody is to be kind to them. You're, you're not living their life. And imagine having this really traumatizing, in most cases, uh, but in, other, in some cases, an amazing experience happen, and you just have nobody to talk to because you're ashamed right. or, or you're worried about what somebody's uh, reaction might be. And to to give somebody a kind ear, in my opinion, is the the least that you could do for somebody. Uh, so I, you know, I consider it a privilege, and I also uh, consider it uh, uh, like historical record. Uh, you know, people like me and you, and you know, thousands of other researchers and writers. You know, Lauren Coleman, like all these people who are documenting these types of things. Seth Breedlove. You know, I'm trying to think of people, but there's too many to think of. The late great, you know, Stanton Friedman. Yeah, uh, it, it's historical record that you know not everybody's a paying paying attention to, but it's still important to to document. You know, and and I'm I'm playing a small part in that, and uh, you know I consider that a privilege as well. Well, you're doing an awesome job, and uh, I'm wondering what's next. You've accomplished all this <laughs> already, and uh, you're on your course, uh, and you've integrated a lot of. Uh, things that could have been separate directions pulling you into into your uh your journey so what's next uh, i think it's to stay the course unless there's another form of media that maybe gets invented or that i want to try out um you know stay the course i love doing the podcast and uh, i really enjoy uh writing the books i'm actually working on a new book right now and i want to do more documentaries well, there's plenty of uh, information that needs to be conveyed, and it sounds like you're busy uh, packaging it and, and getting it out there where people can uh, um, access it and uh, expand uh, their minds and perhaps uh, with kindness um, see that, that whatever's happening to them happens to a lot of other people, um, including yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I've had my own experiences and uh, and I write about them in both books you know I, I'm definitely not afraid to share what's what's happened to me and uh, uh, you know nothing bad in my opinion it's you know but it, it's not always in the moment or a few days after the moment it wasn't always the easiest thing to share but I'm kind of way past all that now so uh, I'm kind of like an open book pardon the pun and uh, some of the experiences, as you say, it is part of the historical record. And uh, right now we're groping with uh, the invisible. And uh, unfortunately, we have different systems of belief that, uh, that like, tries to explain it. Uh, but then that's a right. trap because now you have a vocabulary and you have a context, but uh, you're sure. really not seeing the whole phenomenon anymore. And you kind of closed your mind to uh, some of yeah. its uh, – possibilities that aren't in the box so you're doing it in a very awesome manner well i i appreciate that because i couldn't agree with that more i think it's imperative 
to be as rational and as open-minded as possible. And those two things do work together. You don't have to uh, believe in everything uh, to be open-minded. You know, that, that's kind of the whole point of being open-minded is, okay, maybe there is a possibility here. I'm not just going to turn it away because I'm in this box of certain beliefs. That, that also isn't to say that I don't have some internal beliefs about some things, but uh when you're 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 telling somebody else's story even when you're telling your own story i think it's best to be as as open and candid about it as possible and then whosever eyes or ears that it falls upon hopefully they treat it with that same respect and and don't try to box it in like oh what you experienced was a military fighter jet or what you experienced was a, a demon or you know uh mm-hmm. There's just no way to know that. There, there's no way to know any of this. And, and I think when people claim to be experts, that's when you stop listening to them and maybe move on to somebody else. I think you can have an expert in cases. You know, Stan Freeman right. was certainly Stan Freeman was certainly an expert in many cases. You know, uh, can you take all those cases that he's an expert in and say he's an expert in ufology? I don't think that's a stretch. You know, but I think if you ask Stanton, he'd be like, "No, I'm not an expert." You know, I'm figuring this out as as we go along because nothing's been figured out. You know, so. Have you ever met Stanton? No, no, I never had the chance. Um, you know, I, I, I have obviously books. Years ago, uh, when he was uh, when uh, the New York Fortean Society was still around, John Keel used to run that. So I used oh, to go yeah, there. Yeah. And Stanton <laughs> used to be a regular there. Um, That's so awesome. I, I was very honored to have gotten to meet him. Um, you mentioned that your documentaries are available through Amazon Prime, and your books are also available through uh, Amazon. And uh, um, I know your latest book is available through Llewellyn as well. That's right, Llewellyn Worldwide Publishing. And uh, wherever books are sold, they have a pretty great distribution process. So uh, wherever books are sold, uh, uh, that's where you can find otherworldly encounters. And if they don't have it, then they can order it for you. But I would like to mention a pretty cool website. It's called okay. IndieBound, IndieBound.org. I'm not associated with them in any way. I just support what they do. But it's I-N-D-I-E, Bound, B-O-U-N-D.org. And uh, they do a lot of things, but one really cool feature on their website is that you can search mom-and-pop bookstores uh, to see if they have copies of your favorite book. Yeah, so you type in your zip code. It'll show you all the mom-and-pop stores in that zip code, and then you can do a search for the book that you want. And it's a really great way to support mom-and-pop bookstores. Don't get me wrong. Amazon's been great and all that good stuff, but we're losing – you know, these, these amazing uh, businesses in our communities. And uh, this is a great way to support that. Well, thank you for that gift because uh, uh, I love the mom and pop bookstores. There are a couple that I know of, but I've heard rumors of others. So hopefully uh, with this, I'll be able to uh, uh, locate them. Uh, Now you're a man who follows your passion, who follows your dream. What advice can you give to those um, who aren't following their passion or their dream? Um, I think it's a piece of advice that was given to me a little while ago, and it's that there's no rules. You you can do what you want. Uh, it, there's no one way to write a book. There's no one way to to make a song to to get somebody to hear it. 
none of it none of that matters whatever whatever processes are in place don't matter um you're the best at being who you are and there are ways to get your voice heard and you don't have to follow a simple path because, or you don't have to follow a, a, <clears throat> a certain path. Whatever works best for you is going to work best for you. And that might be following some rules and it might not be. And I know for me, um, once I broke out of that box, like, oh, this is how you go about this and that. Oh, well, that's not really working for me. Or why is this really hard? Well, you know what? I don't have to do that. <laughs> I can do this. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, you know. But uh, I think that's the best advice I was ever given, that there's no rules. You can you can do what you want. You want to write a book, write it. Listen, if I can write a book, anybody can write a book. And it's just a matter of taking that extra step to maybe, if you can't believe in yourself, believe in the work. Believe in, 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 in what somebody has entrusted in you. And take that extra step and send that manuscript out. And if and if no publisher gets back to you, you know, use CreateSpace. Amazon has this company called CreateSpace, and you can just self-publish. And there's, I'm sure, 10,000 other self-publishing companies out there, you know, and, and uh, just put it out yourself, you know. Thank you so much. That is powerful and very sage uh, advice. Uh, I'm also someone who had to you know, basically uh, create their own way because the way did not exist for doing mm. a lot of the things that, that I've done. So that, that is awesome advice. Uh, you are an awesome individual, and I salute you. I wish you the greatest success in all of your uh, endeavors, and I'm looking forward to having you back on again. Hercules, I'd love to come back on. Thanks so much for, for having me on tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, and thanks for being on. All right. Take care now. Take care, my friend. Uh, we're going to take a brief music break. We're going to listen to Brand Kadorian's King of Dreams, and then we'll be back with Unarian Revelations. Our guests today are Celeste Pell and Lonnie Calvert, and our topic, the Interplanetary Confederation, Part 3.
Welcome back to Pride of Olympus. Our next segment is Unarian Revelations. Our guests today are Celeste Pell and Lonnie Calvert, and we'll be continuing with our exploration of the Interplanetary Confederation. Uh, today is part three of that particular journey. Welcome, Celeste and Lonnie. Hello, Hello good to be here. Um, it's great to have you here, and uh, it's been a while since we last spoke, so I've missed you. Yeah, yeah so you too. got everything resolved, huh? Um, yes, uh, the problems that were on the station were uh, fixed. Uh, there are a couple of new quirks, uh, but most of the old quirks are gone. So uh, um, <laughs> I, I found ways Always of getting something. around the some of the quirks and the others it's uh, still an adventure but uh, onwards we go and uh, i'm really looking forward to this uh, exploration before we continue because it has been a while um how about we start with a summary of what the interplanetary confederation is all about about the lens which uh, binds uh, it uh, together uh, with communication and with uriel's unique uh, role in coming here to the earth so do you want well, an order so we don't talk over each other? <laughs> uh, that would be great. Uh, Celeste, uh, would you like to go first? Yeah, I I think maybe rather than each one of us trying to answer, it'd be easier to split it up. So I'll just start with talking about what the Interplanetary Confederation is, and maybe Lonnie can talk about the lens. Uh, basically, Uriel, um, who was a very advanced being, archangel, overshadowing the physical person, Ruth Norman, who was co-founder with her husband, Ernest Norman, of the Nereus uh, mission on planet Earth. In 1973, 
sub-channels. She started making a series of mental communications with beings that were considered her spiritual counterpart or polarity on she discovered 32 other worlds throughout the Milky Way galaxy strategically placed to form an interplanetary confederation. Um, she became aware that this was part of a master plan that had been set up millions of years ago. And at one time, 800,000 years ago, that plan was thwarted. So as a great significance in uh, this time period, that this plan would be completed and Earth is to be the 33rd member, all these 32 worlds as they were contacted by Uriel were spiritually awakened uh, through a projection of healing energies and they were able to mentally make the connection with higher uh, spiritual planes and the lens um, for help and guidance and overcoming their planetary problems of which some of them were very technologically advanced. Robots were about to take other over. Others had environmental disasters, overpopulation. So we may think we have problems on our Earth world, but whatever problems these planets had as they got this help through the lens and made this connection with all the people on their planet with their spiritual or higher selves, they were able to work together to... Um, start learning the signs of energy that the Normans brought that we call the Unarius teachings and put them into practice and uh, were able to make great fantastic changes on their planets and turn things around. So they serve as wonderful examples of what we have to look forward to in our future. Wow, thank you so very much. And uh, just uh, to add a little bit before we go to Lonnie uh, to what you said, uh, the Unarius teachings are spiritual, but it's a, Unarius is a spiritual science. It's not a religion. Most definitely. It's based on the energy principles, which are really more than third dimensional. It goes into the interdimensional principles of energy because energy is not just third dimensional. It's really supported by the fourth, fifth, sixth, the higher dimensions. Thank you, Celeste. Lonnie? Um, since this is number three, and um, we have talked about a lot of these things before, and it's an overview, um, I'm assuming that your listeners already know we're not alone in the universe and that there is an evolutionary continuity to life. Otherwise, we'd be here you know, all day explaining things. So just taking that for granted. Right. Uh, um. Aries uh, is where Uriel, um, you could say originally, uh, one of the ones that she's talked about originally coming from that planet, advanced planet that we're aware of. And um, they could see in the future, and um, they saw that the beings that resided on Earth planets would need help, and uh, it would necessitate a great plan, or else they would completely destroy themselves. So... Um, what we're going to be talking about, the reason that this is a good uh, thing to do in the beginning to give a little overview is because as we refer to things, if people have an idea of what these things that we're mentioning are, you know, it'll it'll help them to follow along with, with what we're saying. So anyway, 
they knew that they would need a unified interplanetary teaching and a projection of light, as Celeste mentioned. So 33 Aryans were chosen by Uriel to go to specific planets, Earth planets, and these were her protégés that were selected and trained on a plane of development far beyond the rest of the people, even on Aries. And um, the 33 planets were carefully se uh, selected. It's it's a confederation of planets, kind of like an interplanetary United Nations, strategically placed in the Milky Way galaxy to form a seven-pointed star. And um, each of them will be mentioning a, a power tower. They have um, some of them were turned on and some of them weren't. And those provide ray beams of light that are used for communication, interplanetary travel, and other things. And um, her Uriel's higher self, you, you may hear us say Ayoshana because that's how they all referred to her, but her higher self is Uriel. And um, let's see, it was the beginning of the Golden Age, and that's why she she um, contacted them in 1973, that the Earth planets needed to be stepped up in their evolutionary climb, uh, their frequency raised, and all the people move forward in a more progressive evolution. And she was the spokesperson on the physical plane for the spiritual worlds and Unarius and this plan because of her relationship with all of them. So um, that's kind of adding to what Celeste said. As far as the lens is concerned, it's a huge crystalline structure. It's the size of a large planet but it's not physical. Uh, Ayoshana or Uriel called it infinity crystallized. It's a communication device, a translator. It provides teachings, healing, uh, information of all kinds, kind of like a really, really futuristic um, giant computer. <laughs> if people or internet, you know, if, if people need something to relate to. Um it also allows contact with higher worlds, such as Eros. Uh, it was created over a million years' time from um, the perfected mind energies of people on the seven planes of Unarius, countless thousands of spiritual light beings, and they were constantly adding their power and high frequencies. Uh, it's indestructible, eternal. Um, it's a means by which... Um, Ayoshan is contacting the 32 planets and also that the polarities can contact um, the higher spiritual planets because it uh, steps up the frequency um, to allow this. And then um, the polarities or planets can't otherwise contact a higher frequency than their own. So they can't. That's why they were waiting for her contact, many of them, because they couldn't go forward without that contact, without the polarization. And so um, all they have to do is think of the lens to be instantly put in touch with it once the planets were uh, polarized. So and then did you want to know exactly how it works or talk about that later? Or no, that's that? okay. We can talk about that later. But uh, thank you for okay. the excellent – we have an overview. Before we proceed with uh, uh, the individual planets, uh, Celeste, is there anything you'd like to add to what uh, Lonnie has shared? Well, basically, the lens is a regenerator, and it's constantly growing and expanding. 
through the projection of the mind energies of the perfected higher beings, um, the higher consciousness of Uriel in particular. Um, so it's like the infinite, always growing, always expanding. There's no end to the development. Um, and I think the one common thing, uh, a spiritual challenge in terms of all the planets and the particular ones we're going to talk to is that Lonnie touched on it in order for them to progress in their evolution and to make that connection with the higher spiritual worlds, they needed this contact with Uriel. And then in turn, uh, they were able to make their own contact and particularly amplified through being able to connect with the lens, as she mentioned. Okay, thank you. And although this might sound to folks who aren't familiar with Unarius like science fiction, I can personally vouch uh, for after years of exploration that what you're saying is exactly uh, true, that uh, once you connect with these things through the, your studies, uh, uh, they're accessible. Uh, you won't always remember everything that happened <laughs> to you or that you learned while you were there, but uh, these places are very accessible uh, um, you know, once you started tuning yourself uh, to them, uh, we spent. And then the other thing is, Hercules. Sure. You know, as I was mentioning, I mean, we could because this is a science and not a religion. We could give all the science behind what we're saying today, but again, then we would be on, you know, for several days talking. So we're Which just, enjoy, we're just taking. There would come a soft air before then. Uh, but fortunately, we have these monthly shows so we can continue the, the dialogue and the exploration and uh, um, share more of these uh, teachings. Now, we explored for the past uh, couple of episodes our particular uh, spiral in this uh, cosmic uh, star. And now it's time to visit our, our neighbors. And there are five uh, planets uh, that are part of the Interplanetary Confederation on that uh, particular arm. So let's start with uh, BASIS. Um, Lonnie, do you want to start that one? Uh, now that's a big subject. What did you want to know about BASIS? Um, well, this is a journey through the Interplanetary Confederation. So if you can give us an overview of uh, BASIS, uh, what is BASIS uh, all about, a description of their society? Where were they stuck? How did Uriel help them get uh, unstuck? Uh, just, just some basic information so that folks uh, can learn about uh, uh, the planets. Okay. Well, first of all, and and we do have a video of this, by the way, that was enacted by students. So if anybody is interested oh, awesome. in that, uh, yeah, they can get it from Unarius. But um, they were kind of scrambling around when the transmission first came through because um, they weren't they, – they thought it was going to happen, but they – and they were kind of prepared. But um, the person who actually answered the call, quote-unquote, the, you know, cosmic call, communication, um, Trionis – had never spoken all of his life. So everybody was surprised when he was the one that that took the call, so to speak, and started speaking. And it was that was a proof for the people because he couldn't speak before. Um, the main problem uh, was that they felt that they were superior to other planets and that they had all the answers. And I think that's a common thing um, you know, I, that's probably another question that's going to come down the line. But uh, in general, other than than Shunan, 
um, there was a tendency for the polarities to forget over the long time that they were placed on the planet, you know, like whatever it was, 150 to uh, 200,000 years ago to forget their mission or, you know, to get sidetracked or something. And and that was one of the problems, you know, the people got complacent and, um, you know, he, they, they, the leader would think that they were still on the pathway, but again, they kind of got stuck or sidetracked. But um, once uh, the and again we're going to generalize here. But once Uriel made the contact and uh, polarized the planet and the polarity of uh, Triunus, um, the the changes that happened, uh, the progress. They started study groups. Um, there was new construction. They had a more of a communal type of living. Uh, the the people. Uh, started ridding themselves of jealousy and uh, other, you know, lower emotions. There was a, a planet-wide program for self-betterment, and um, they were hoping that would attract higher frequency souls in the future. So now they're attracting, because of the changes, people that are more advanced in the arts, you know, in dance and music and painting and so forth. So um, that's kind of a brief overview. I'm sure Celeste can add more. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Celeste, is there anything you'd like to add to basis? Well, um, the leader, Trionis, actually was ignorant that there were higher spiritual worlds. However, he was trying to promote the teachings from an advanced being that had lived on their planet many um, millennia previously known as Loomis, and that was really um, the same overshadowing influence of Ernest Norman, uh, Archangel Raphael, and he brought the higher teachings to them. So when he was talking about them and trying to promote them, people thought he was a little off, and they still accepted him because he was very bright in terms of helping to develop their technology. So then, of course, as uh, after this contact with Uriel and all the people on the planet were spiritually awakened, then they were open to these teachings and they were instituted in their educational system. And again, in the smaller communal living, they had study groups and um, that helped them to progress quickly because the teachings are all about how you apply them to yourself and take personal responsibility for your life and your problems rather than blaming someone else. So people started in these smaller groups to work on their themselves and then beyond that, their interactions with each other to develop more positive forward-thinking interactions to work together um, for the betterment of the planet and to think more about giving themselves versus being selfish. So, you know, it was what was funny though um, when Uriel asked if he had any questions, and just in the course of their conversation, he wanted to know what the development was on Earth. <laughs> and, and she's going, "Well, this is kind of like the home of, you know, the worst of the worst in the galaxy." And you know, they like when the moderator has come here numerous times to try and bring the spiritual teachings to people of earth. He's been murdered, you know, by, by them. So it kind of gives you an idea of what it's like here. And we're still warring and, 
you know, pollution and all that stuff. So anyway, I just I thought that was funny when when he would, and I think Uriel or Ayoshana did too. <laughs> like, how is all that? You know, Clive, you're the one that's you know leading all this development of all of these planets. How's the development on your planet? You know, on Earth. <laughs> Thank you for that story. Well, I wasn't had, aware of that, and that is an awesome, that she, is an awesome story. Yeah. She had to make it really clear to all the polarities that her That's physical not her body real was home. on yeah. planet yeah. Earth to, to serve in the capacity as a teacher and to help the Earth world to move forward. But her higher self wasn't relative to the Earth plane at all. It's very developed, and she was from originally – uh, Eros and Aries, the higher spiritual planes, and so there, of course, the life is very advanced. They're spiritual planes, so that was one thing that she explained to a lot of the uh, spiritual polarities, the individuals that she made the contact with, uh, that this was not her home planet, planet Earth. No, she was just here to help us, like uh, incarnations of other high spiritual teachers. And uh, that is very reassuring uh, that, uh, again, we're not left to our own uh, devices, that uh, um, beings from higher realms are indeed uh, interested in us and available to us uh, should we decide to uh, ascend rather than uh, wallowing in the mud. Well, that's their their whole purpose is service to others and helping mankind move forward. That was why the whole plan was set in motion, because they saw in the future that this is what would happen, you know, to the planets and they wouldn't be able to make the progress themselves. So that's why they put one of these um, spiritual uh, polarities or protégés of Uriel on each of these 33 planets or the other 32 planets, because they saw that that this is what was going to happen and that they needed that polarization and the help to move forward in their progressive evolution. So it sounds like the people of basis, uh, they benefited from uh, the Unarian teachings and they were able to make changes and uh, they became unstuck in where they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. I mean, all of them did. I mean, earth is kind of like the laggard. Th- th- things are difficult <laughs> very, very uh, difficult here. Um, how about uh, Glennis? That's another planet in the same arm uh, as Basis. Uh, what were the circumstances there, and how were they resolved? You want me to go first again, or uh, we'll start with Celeste I'll this go. time. Okay. This way, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. So. Planet Glennis uh, was obsessed with religion. Like we think we have many religions and sects of religions on this planet. Well, theirs was to the point where they were worshiping all these different idols and figures and their cities were just overwhelmed with temples and shrines and statues. It was kind of like the contact um, mentioned like um, Muhammad and Mecca where you would pray bow five times a day so that was one of the first things was to wake up the polarity who was a female polarity um, on the planet and um, was it was it a female polarity Lonnie or no yeah 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 Sherman yeah and she became aware of um, 
her having been brought to this planet as far back as 10,000 years ago and um, that that um, she'd lost her way. And she was, um, the lifespan at that time was 200 to 300 years and uh, she was 200 years old at that time. And she had actually been brought to that planet by Uriel, known at that time as Aishana in 1973, um, 190,000 years ago. And, of course, she'd lived a number of different lifetimes. So as she became spiritually awakened, um, the planet, again, um, the projection of Uriel, all the individuals then got behind her as the leader. And what they decided is, be free of this strong religious obsession because they were constantly reminded of, of it in their cities with all the temples and statues, etc. that they literally moved out of the cities and built new cities. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, you would think that would be quite an undertaking, but obviously they must have gotten some help through the lens to speed up that pro- process. And there was a lot of infighting with all the religious factions. So when they were all united with one common spiritual belief based on this scientific teaching, then they started to work together and to get along, which was a huge change on that planet. And there was a sense of instead of we know it all, um, we've got all the answers. And there was a great change with now being a sense of humility uh, among the people and the planet leaders. Wow, we could use uh, that. That is, as you pointed out, something that uh, we are afflicted uh, with here on Earth. So uh, we can definitely learn a lot from that uh, circumstance. Lonnie, would you like to add well, to that? She made a, a point to say that worship is regressive and degenerative. It damages the person and attracts lower astral forces and obsessions, and they become helpless to free themselves. It's not spiritual. Religion is, is destructive to spiritual natures, you know, because a lot of people equate the two. And so she was really strong about that to make a difference to, to Sermon. Sermon um, was... And I I remember her name because it's like, okay, because it's such a religious planet, you know, like sermon, Uh you know, how people relate, uh, their names relate to how they are. Anyway, she had 32 other polarities, what we call, um, that worked with her, but they were all male. And um, she thought it was amusing because they didn't think females were very smart, but um, she was. She was more, much more intelligent than they were, so they considered her like a male because she was. She knew more than they did. But um, anyway, Celeste um, said a lot of it. But one of the things that I thought was really um, fascinating was um, besides the cities that they built outside, because you know there was just layers of. I don't know, obsessions and stuff in the old cities that they were trying to get away from. But they built this hotel, and um, it was beside their tower. It was 1,000 feet high, same same height as their tower. But the the, the hotel was like for um, interplanet travelers, guests, but each of the different levels of the hotel had a different uh, environment. 
And um, so because you have to figure that people on different planets have different um, environments, you know, as far as the, the air they breathe and, you know, what their, accustomed, their bodies are accustomed to. So they made each level a different to accommodate different peoples from different planets. And <clears throat> that's one of their big um, joys in how they occupy their minds to get them. They needed some kind of project so they weren't thinking about their old religious beliefs. So um, they're really excited about that, and it's got this glass tubular elevator in the center. So you, they can communicate with different um, and people on different levels, you know, through the through the glass. And um, like when the ship is coming in, they determine um, which environmental level that or environment, yeah, ambiance, whatever would fit for them and then they go directly to that and um they can accommodate up to 100 guests indefinitely so i just i would it's like a guy i would like to go there it was like if this is on our planet i'd recommend to people to as a travel you know tourist destination to go check it out well you know that's that's an that's a really important principle too is when you're trying to stop with something that's in, been ingrained with you over, you know, a, lo- a long period of time, you really need a positive project to focus on, and that's what this was right. for them. Besides building the cities around the tower. When they discovered that actually why they built this hotel because their planet was strategically located at a certain point in the seven-pointed star system that would facilitate more than any of the other planets, interplanetary travel between the other worlds. And so that's why they were designated to build this interplanetary hotel, so to speak. Um, So I thought that was very interesting, too, that there was a scientific reason for it. It wasn't just, oh, well, you're going to do this. And then again, because they really weren't that advanced technologically, there again, that's where the lens came in because they got all of the complete instructions of how to build it from the lens. Wow. Um, I'm looking at the time, and our, our journey is approaching yep. its uh, close for today. So uh, time is zoomed by very quickly, and we'll continue our exploration uh, of uh, that particular arm of the uh, uh, stellar map, the star map. Um, Unarius has a lot of ways uh, out there where people can uh, access the teachings and uh, uh, talk with people and learn directly from uh, from people uh, or read on their own at their own uh, pace. Can you share some of the portals to the teachings that are out there? Do you want to, Celeste? Well, we have one main website, uh, unarius.org, U-N-A-R-I-U-S, and then we have three other websites, past-lifetherapy.com, which focuses on uh, the core teachings of Unarius of past life therapy, and it has testimonials from students. And then there's also um, Tesla Energy, Dot org and there's interplanetaryconfederation.com, which there's an overview of all the 32 worlds on there, information about the lens. And what's really fantastic is that there are short audio clips from the original contacts that Uriel had 
with the spiritual polarities, five to seven minutes, and you can really hear the different personalities come through in the contacts, and it's really wonderful to hear. And we also, since that's how the information was originally received, we also saw those contacts. Um, you can find them on our online store uh, individually by planet, or rather on the CD or MP3s, and then they were also transcribed into book form called the Tesla Speaks, uh, Volume 4, Parts 1, 2, and 3. And then there's an overview book called The Restoration, which I won't go into because we don't have much time how that came about, but that's also an overview of each planet. It has wonderful um, graphic illustrations that were really done, originally done as a form of watercolor, very colorful, that depict the planet and their history and uh, key things that help them in overcoming their uh, problems. So that is there as a resource. And then we have our own YouTube channel, Unarius 33. There are clips from past lectures and workshops and classes and clips from our videos that we've produced since 1973. And you can find 30 of those videos, some parts one and two, that cover the gamut of what Unarius is about, from our extraterrestrial history to psychodramas, uh, reenactments of the past and the healing that people experience, the core teachings and the lesson course. And that is at a a public uh, website through a nonprofit called la36.org. Uh, you select public access link and then search for Unarius, and that's a wonderful way to get introduced to what Unarius is all about by watching those videos. And then, and we have of course, a we Facebook offer, page. Yeah, we do, and we just archived um, the live stream of part of our interplanetary confederation that we had three weeks ago from the singing to the uh, behind-the-scenes tour. We offer classes each Sunday and Wednesday from 7 to 8.30, and they are live-streamed and then archived until the next class airs. And you'll find on our website a page that explains how you would uh, access that class. Um, Again, I wouldn't go into detail, but it's most definitely um, a wonderful way for people to listen to others that are studying the same thing, experiencing the tremendous healing energies that are projected during the classes and hear other people's um, testimonials of, of what they're learning about themselves and their healing because we all serve as examples to help each other. And if yep. people happen to be out on the West Coast, our live events, we have um, the Mother Goose Parade coming up on the 24th of this month. And we will have a live dove release. We are opening the whole parade. It's And it's one of the biggest uh, parades of its kind on the West Coast. And um, that's the 24th. And then the 29th and we, we have... Live, we, Lonnie, you want to tell them we're going to live stream it on our Facebook page too. And then uh, in December, um, the 29th, we have what's called the Flame Ceremony. And, again, people are invited, if they happen to be in this neighborhood, to participate with us. It's a way that we um, symbolically, you know, walk through the flames and make that attunement with the inner planes. It's it's helpful 
of course, you can do it anywhere, anytime, but um, doing it together where two or more are gathered and seeing the beautiful flames that they they are able to create from energy <clears throat> and walking through those, it's a whole different experience. So people are invited, the public is invited to both of those events. And I'd like to thank you both. We have 10 seconds left. So uh, I'm looking forward to our next uh, conversation. And I'm looking forward to your coming uh, back uh, to the Live Expo in May. Good to well, talk with you. you Thanks much. for inviting us. By. Yeah, Same here. Thank you. Yes, it did. And thanks to all who joined us tonight. Until next time, this is the wonderful folks at Unarius and myself with and amazing adventures. Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. Now, go forth and create a better world, one filled with light and love. On behalf of the pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journeys be joyous. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.